0: So, Father's Day. As on Mother's Day, um, we'd like to take these opportunities where we're really celebrating our parents, our fathers and our mothers, to try to get across the overriding, critical, and deep importance of the family structure to the ancient Jews who wrote our scriptures. And the reason for that is, is that if we want to really understand Jesus' message, if we want to understand Um, what our scriptures are telling us about our God, then we need to understand the the context, the milieu, don't you love that word, the milieu, um, from which it came. Because their mindset, the way that they looked at life, has been... Written into the scriptures and and the the, the symbolism the the structure uh, everything that is there, if we can understand what they understood, it just makes everything come together to it is difficult for us as modern Westerners to understand it all or to grasp the overarching importance of family to the ancient world. it was. Absolutely tantamount, it was the same as survival. To be in the family, to be within the tribe, meant survival. Everything that meant life, everything that meant continuation, happened within that enclosure, within family, within tribe. And so survival was everything about family. And everything about family was protection, protecting the family. If you think about the law... The law had two purposes. The law was had the purpose of preserving the life of the family, the life of the tribe, the life of the nation, and to preserve the awareness of God's presence in every moment of that tribal life. And so the law was set up to protect the family. I mean, think about the 10 commandments. Right? You got 10 commandments. The first 4 are about honoring God. Right? No other false gods, no graven images. Remember the Sabbath, and um, what was the last one? Um, keep his name holy. Okay. Then you have the fifth commandment, which is about honoring father and mother. And then the last five are all about the regulations within which you lived in tribe. So no mo- murder, no adultery, no uh, stealing, no lying, no coveting. So just looking at the Decalogue, just looking at the Ten Commandments, what we see is first and foremost... You honor God and you obey God as lawgiver. Second, right underneath that, honor your father and mother as the directors of your life. And then you honor the tribe with all the regulations and the ways that we live together. It's like a military precision, it absolutely is a military precision. There was a chain of command, you did not break the chain of command. Just like on the battlefield, you break the chain of command, the the penalty is death. Within the tribes, you break the chain of command, the penalty is death. Which again, brings into focus the the prodigal son, doesn't it? For that young man to do what he did, he could have been given the death penalty. He was breaking the chain of command. Now, especially when it was a nomadic people, to be outside the tribe was absolute death. Death to be left in the desert, to be outside of the walls of the city, anything like that was absolute death. So they honored these codes to the letter. They were so ingrained into their psyche, ingrained into their culture, because their lives, very lives, depended on it. And so their understanding of father, and we talked about this on Mother's Day, ab, you know, aleph bet in their alphabet, literally means a strong house. And mother... Aleph Mem literally means strong water, which was the the resin, the glue that came up as they were tanning the hides that they used as an adhesive. Father understood as the structure of the house, the strength of the house, the one who kept the house running, but mother as the glue that holds the family together. And so in these two complementary roles, we can see the structure of the Hebrews and the way that they honored this system, the way that they flowed in this system and so god then is seen as an extension of the earthly authority of the parents the parents have the earthly authority that patriarch and the matriarch have that authority you honored them father is seen father in heaven is seen as an extension of that and so here is this this idea of father ab but also connected to chokhmah, which means wisdom. And so there was a feminine quality. And just as father and mother form the whole picture of the familial and earthly authority and power structure, so God had the same parts. God was a strength of the house, but he was also the wisdom and the glue, the compassion and the mercy that holds the people together. And so it was never one or the other even though they referred to him as father, referred to him as Ab, right? There was still understood that feminine quality. But they saw, the, they saw their God as the, this extension, that, that authority structure mirrored in the family structure. Think about it, though. Don't we do the same? Don't we look at God as an extension of what our earthly fathers were all about? I mean, think about your relationship with your father. Think about the, I know roles are changing and there's, there's wildly different structures in families, especially now. But even in the traditional structures, we see that the father was generally working outside of the home. And so he was less present to the children as they were growing up. Sometimes roles are reversed and so you're going to have this. But we still have a parent who is less present than the other one. The one who is usually the stricter one. The one who expects performance from the children. I've known about three men who were uh, raised by uh, fathers who were fighter pilots in the military. Oh, my gosh. Imagine the, 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 the standards that were set in that home. Every one of them was suffering PTSD from that childhood, you know, trying to deal with all of that. But, but the father usually is the one who is the stricter disciplinarian. Wait till your father gets home, right? It's that kind of idea. I, I understand. I'm painting a broad picture here. But for many of us, that was the experience of father. Father wasn't the one who gave unconditional love as much as mom did. Father was the one who expected performance for approval. And really, when you think about it, that father figure, whether it's provided by mother or father, is also an analog or a, a, an extension of the outside world for which the child has no experience yet. As they move into the world, they're going to find out the world works exactly the same way. There isn't a free lunch. You, know? you have to perform in order to be approved. And that is the economy. That is the mindset. That is the way of living life that we grow up understanding. So God as a cosmic father then takes on that same symbol of society in our minds. So we're seeing God now as expecting performance for approval. And that's not hard to do, because that is all of our earthly experience, beginning with our father or our mother, and then moving into the world. And so now we've got the church, though, reinforcing that very concept. The church that was modeled after, at least the Western church, after the hierarchy of the Roman Empire. And so you see that same kind of structure built in. And you see that same idea that there are things that we need to do in order to be approved by God. And so we grow up with this legal understanding. We grow up with this zero-sum game view. You know what zero-sum games are? It's if you win something, somebody else has to lose something in order for everything to always come out exactly equal. Zero-sum. You know? You can't both be winners. Someone wins, someone loses, and everything equals out. We have that mentality. Why? Because generally speaking, that's the way the world works. If you get something, it came out of somebody else's pocket. It came out of somebody else's hide. And so here we are with this idea of the world in terms of legality, zero-sum, and especially scarcity. We see our resources as finite. We see them as scarce. We see them as something that we need to acquire sometimes through great effort, even violence, and then has to be held on and protected. And so this is the way we're looking at life. It's a rationing mentality. It's a bunker mentality. It's supply and demand. But it's all based on scarcity, based on legality, and based on this idea of zero-sum. Now, It may not be as heavy as all that in your mind, but if you think about it, that underlying idea, that underlying understanding of the world carries those very elements. But here's Jesus painting a very different picture of his Father. Let me read a couple of passages for you. and um, I know that uh, Brendan's going to put them up on the top there, or you can look at them in your handouts. Jesus is trying to give us a radically different picture of who who he knows his Father to be. Jesus has spent the time in the wilderness. Jesus has become one with the Father. Jesus knows his Father firsthand. And as he comes back into his hometown, as he comes back into the Galilee, he's trying to portray that image of Father. Who is this Father really? In John 10.10, it's right in the middle of that beautiful passage about him being the good shepherd. Remember that one? I'm the good shepherd. The shepherd know me. I know my sheep. He gives us the example, the the image of the sheepfold, which was usually a rough structure that the shepherds just created, usually against a cliff wall or a, a hillside, and just roughly built three sides off of that and left a space. And then they would sleep in the space if they didn't have a gate that they could put to keep the sheep in at night. And the sheep wouldn't step over the shepherd they knew. Jesus says, I am the gate. I am the door. And the sheep that go through me find pasture, find salvation, find their rest. Anyone who jumps over is a thief and a robber. And then he says this I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And this idea of abundant life is what Jesus is trying to get across over and over and over again. That this mentality of scarcity, this, this mentality of zero-sum is something that really has to die in us if we're ever going to have the ability to understand who our Father really is from Jesus' point of view. At Luke 5, starting right at verse 1, this is where Jesus meets Shimon, Simon Peter, for the first time. He's still Simon, and he's a fisherman. And they're at the shore of the lake, and they're drying their nets, and they've been out all night and caught absolutely nothing. And Jesus comes trailing all these people who want to hear him speak. So he hops into Peter's boat and tells him to push out a little bit. And so as he's a little bit out from the shore, he's preaching to all these people. And when he finishes preaching, he says at verse 4, Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and got nothing. But I will do as you say, and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break so that they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. Now that's a catch of fish. There's another one if you want to read it in John 21. Same idea this abundance where you think there's scarcity, where you've been working all night long and got nothing, suddenly your boats are sinking from what is going on here. Matthew 14. This is, Jesus gets the news that his cousin has been beheaded. His cousin has been killed in prison, executed by Herod. And what does he do? He goes off into a secluded place to pray. He goes off to compose himself. He goes off to mourn. This is his cousin whom he loved who baptized him. But the people follow him and they find him. And so when he comes back out again, all these people are there waiting for them. The scripture says there's over 5,000 men. They didn't count women and children. What can I tell you? But they were there too. So ordering the people to sit down on the grass, Jesus took the five loaves and two fishes that they had. He realizes they're out in this secluded place, this, this you know off-the-road spot. They've got nothing to eat. They've been there all day. He was healing them and talking to them. And so when he turns around and says, what have we got to eat? Five loaves and two fish. And everybody's saying, well, this isn't going to do anything for this kind of crowd. But he orders the people to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. And breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate, and they were all satisfied, and they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. And there were about 5,000 men who ate, besides the women and the children. Twelve full baskets. The other story, if you want to read it at Matthew 32, where he feeds 4,000, there's seven full baskets. Now those of you who have been here a while, you're listening to the numbers, right? Twelve and seven. Seven, the number of perfection, of fulfillment, spiritually, especially. And twelve, the number of a complete cycle, the fullness of the earth. They're saying that there was absolute abundance here. Even after they ate, even after it should have gone down to nothing, even after there should have been nothing, to, there was nothing to start with, and they should have even got filled. There still was absolute abundance, completion, perfection, fullness. After they ate, the sower and the seed parable that Jesus tells. Remember that one. He talks about a sower who goes out and he's scattering his seed just willy-nilly, which seems kind of wasteful. But on those rocky hillsides, it was basically the only way you could sow seeds. To try to prepare the soil was Pointless. So he's throwing the seeds. And he knows some are going to fall among the rocks. And they're not going anywhere. Some are going to fall among the thorns. They're not going to go anywhere for very long. And then there's going to some that are going to fall on the path and they're just going to be carried away. But some fall on the good soil. And listen to what he says. Others, seeds, fell on the good soil and yielded a crop. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. Here's this idea of absolute abundance. The crops overflowing that fall on the good soil. And abundance for those who have the ears to hear, which is what Jesus is talking about. At Matthew 5, verse 45, this is where he's talking about loving the enemy. Yeah, you've, you've heard that you love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I want to tell you to love your enemies, love those who persecute you. If you just love your neighbors, what have you done? but loving your enemies. Why? Because your Father in Heaven causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Here is this pouring out of Father's provision. Indiscriminately. It's almost mindlessly just pouring out. Everybody gets it if they want it, if they will accept it. But we... I was going to say we can't deny its existence, but we do. At least we don't see it. We're not aware of it. But here it is. Right now in this room, it's just pouring. God's Spirit, pouring. God's love, pouring. How much are we actually absorbing? Or is it like too many vitamins that you eat? It just goes right back out. You know, This is what we're trying to get a hold of in Jesus' message. And so, Here is this picture of absolute extravagance, abundance in the Father. This wild outpouring, this expenditure, just like the prodigal son, you know, in the story of the prodigal son, which is really the prodigal father. This wild extravagance that he pours out on his boys the elder who stayed and the younger who didn't. It doesn't matter. He's pouring out everything that he has. Yeah. It's no. Scarcity here in anything that Jesus is talking about, and certainly not any zero sum game being played here. Right? The elder brother is outraged because the younger brother gets a party, as if he's going to get something less because the brother's getting something that he didn't deserve. But the father says, You already have everything. How can you get any more than everything? And diminishing your brother's portion isn't going to give you any more because everybody gets everything all the time. See, this is something that doesn't compute with us because it doesn't make sense in the physical world. But Jesus is trying to get us out of those limitations, get us out of that way of thinking and see that the Father's love, the Father's spiritual provision is something completely different. No scarcity here. No zero sum. And so... In trying to get this across, Jesus calls his father by different names. We already know the father was called Ab, right? We we talked about that. That's a strong tribal leader, a judge, a king. We're familiar with that figure. If we didn't get it from our father or from our mother, we certainly got it from life once we got out of the house. We know what that's like. We understand the legality of all of that. We understand the justice of all of that. We understand the zero sum of all of that. But then Jesus turns around and calls his father Abba. That is the name that the Jews used for a personal father. An intimate relationship. For the little children, it was daddy. And Ima was mommy. That was the name that they used to show the intimate connection and the knowing of relationship. And Jesus is bringing that intimate connection into the picture. The Jews who knew their ki- their, their, their God as king, as judge, even as Administrator. Jesus is trying to show them he's also Abba to you. He's also Daddy. He's also intimate. But there is another word that he uses. And I want you to take a look at the uh, first lines of the Our Father. This is Matthew 6, verses 9 to 10. In English, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. But in Aramaic, If we take it and we put it back into Aramaic, the words and the root and pattern system of the words start to teach us something more about what Jesus is doing when he calls his father Abun, Abun. Now you notice obviously Ab is still in there in this root and pattern system. Ab, Abba, Abun. Ab, the king. Abba, daddy. Abun is something different. We still have Ab. We still have the father there. But this un, ending, See, Aramaic words don't have prepositions and and conjunctions. I should say the language doesn't have prepositions and conjunctions the way our language does. They just keep adding suffixes and prefixes onto the words to add those meanings and connect the words into the syntax that they need. So this suffix here adds something. And what it adds... There's a, there's a what we would call a W. It's a vav in their language. And it has to do with securities to secure something as you would drive a tent peg into the ground. And then nun, N, is, a, is a originally was a picture of a germinating seed. And so what you have here is the security of something that continues, the security of something that is birthed. And so when you add that on to father, what you have is the strong house that continues, that is the seed for continuation. And since there's really no gender being denoted here, it really could be a cosmic parent, or it could be the creator of everything, the one who creates, the one who makes sure that everything continues. This is avun. This is how Jesus is seeing his Father. But now the next word. We have this, Cosmic creator, this heavenly creator, this heavenly parent, if you will. And then you have the Vashmaya. And right in the center of that word, the the root of it is Shem. And we've talked about that many times because Shem is their word for name. But what Shem really means in this multi layered system is light, sound, vibration. And it also can mean name, it can mean essence. And it literally was, in terms of the way they understood name, it was the outside characteristic or manifestation of something that pointed to the inner significance, the inner essence. So you looked at something on the outside, you looked at someone's face, but it was giving you clues to the interior. Their names did exactly that. Their names meant something, and they spoke to the essence of each person. They weren't just picked because they liked the sound of it or because it was trendy or they found it in a name book. They were using words that meant something that connected with the inner essence of that person, place, or thing. And so God's Shem is the outward manifestation of his inner essence. Can we tell by looking at his Shem who he really is? But then we have aya on the end of that. Devashmaya, Shemaya. Shemaya which literally means heaven. When you add A-Y-A onto a root, it means without limit, expansive, moving into infinity. So the light and the sound and the vibration without limit to them was the heavens, it was the skies, it was the expanse, it was God's domain, it was God himself. Shemaiah was a euphemism for God so that you didn't use God's name. So if God's Shem is Shemaiah, If God's name is the heavens, then what are the Jews really saying? What is Jesus really saying about the nature of his Father? He's saying that the outer countenance, the outer surface that will give you the clue to the inner essence of your Father is the universe, it's all of creation, it's the heavens themselves. It's the stars above, and it's the explosion of life below, and the world that you live. It's everything that is. And what does that tell us about our Father? It tells us that He loves order and color and beauty, and it tells us He is absolutely extravagant. He overindulges in everything that He does. Think about our universe for a second. What have we learned in the last 50 to 70 years about the farther reaches of our universe? That there are billions upon billions of galaxies out there. Not stars. Galaxies. And each galaxy contains billions upon billions of stars around which revolve trillions of planets, solar systems, planets on which life, like here, is absolutely teeming with billions of life forms. It's it's this absolute overkill, this absolute abundance. As you look out, and think about the ancient peoples looking out every night at that night sky and understanding that was the face of their God. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. That abundance, that non-scarcity, that overflow, is exactly who your Father is. it's so hard for us to get our heads around what this can mean to us. When Jesus is extending all this to us, and we see that God is not who we thought He was, He is extravagance personified, overflowing abundance. In God, we don't receive at someone else's expense. Everybody is paid the same. He told us that story as well, didn't he? doesn't matter. When you come to work, you all get paid the same. Now, does the world really look that way to you in your life? We were just talking about that earlier. You know, some of us are going through real reinventions here. And there is a scarcity. There's a scarcity of income. There's a scarcity of jobs out there. There's a scarcity of opportunity. And someone else got our job, and so they won, and we lost, and there's a zero sum. See, life doesn't present the way Jesus is presenting the Father's love or the Father's reality of our lives. Because in closed systems, what's a closed system? Well, your household can be a closed system, your budget can be a closed system. Your city, your state, your country can be closed systems. This planet can be considered a closed system. Within closed systems, yes, this transfer of energy back and forth does exist. The zero-sum does exist. Things can grow scarce. Things need to be rationed, and so on and so forth. And in limited periods of time, at least within our lifetimes, something can get very scarce, and we can experience these shortages, and we can experience the... the. the the terror even, of not being able to get what we or our family need. And so in our experience in these smaller systems and in this short period of time, we can't see how all of this comes together in God's timing. We can't see how it all comes together in the largest understanding of all of this. And so Jesus is trying to show us a spiritual truth despite the physical realities that we have to deal with day after day. And this creates all sorts of questions, legitimate questions. I was having a conversation with someone and I asked her, you know, do you have any questions, you know, about religion, about spirituality, about anything, as they would pertain to being able to trust God? I mean, we don't want to talk about theology or religion for its own sake, but if there is a question you have that would chip away at your ability to trust God's provision in your life, god's place in your life then that's something we need to take a look at and she said you know i do have one why is it some people get to do bad stuff and hurt people all their lives and then ask for forgiveness right at the end and they're okay like the thief on the cross <laughs> how is that fair how is that right you know i think that's a really good question don't you i mean good grief You play by the rules. Now here's the older brother of the prodigal again. You play by the rules. You pay your taxes. You observe the speed limit. And here's the other guy gets to do this and do that all his life. And then what? Just at the end? Oh, I'm sorry. You know, Lord, remember me when you come into your paradise. Sure, come on in. How is that fair? What's going on here? I am rereading uh, probably my favorite science fiction novel of all time, and I haven't read it for I don't know how many decades now. But uh, the novel is about a desert planet. There is, (laughs) for all intents and purposes, absolutely no water on the entire planet. It is one desert just covered with sand and rock outcroppings. And the natives who live there have learned to live in this harsh environment. And they live in Caves and tunnels cut into the rock with watertight seals on the on the uh, openings, like uh, submarine doors that hold in the moisture. Uh, and and they are not preoccupied with water; they're preoccupied with moisture. Can you catch the difference there? They have to guard every breath that goes out of their mouths. To cry, I mean, if you shed tears. It's like the biggest deal in the world because they don't cry. They do not lose water. They have suits that hold in their body's water, that cover their mouths and and tubes in their noses to bring all of the moisture back and recycle it and make it, all the body fluids, make it potable again so they can drink it. And they have to live this way, constantly thinking about water. Their entire culture revolves around water, you know? They, they have a saying that the man's flesh is his own, but the water belongs to the tribe. And when anyone dies, their bodies are rendered down for the water, and the water is returned to the tribe. There is a couple of outworlders who come into, this, uh, into, into contact with the tribes, and the tribe actually takes them in until they find out that in their pack they had two liters of water. And then they're outraged to the point, incited to the point of violence, because what were you intending to do with this wealth? And, and the, the one whose head were inside at the time, wealth, this is wealth, the water. What does she do? She says to them, I was born on a planet where water fell from the sky and it ran over the land in wide rivers. There were oceans of it so broad that you couldn't see the other side. And this gasp and this sigh comes over the people. Water fell from the sky and ran in rivers. They can't even comprehend. They don't have words in their language to describe such a thing. Now imagine you are a desert dweller. Everything in your life has pointed to your survival being to conserve your body's water. To conserve the water of the tribe. And then suddenly you step off a starship into a world where water is falling from the sky. You can drink all you want. You can bathe in it. You can go swimming. How would that change your perception of life? How would that mess with your head? Everything in you has been guarding this and holding on so tightly for so long, and suddenly it's falling from the sky. Okay, if that doesn't do it for you, how about this? (laughs) You've been poor all your life. You have learned to be frugal. You have learned to squeeze a penny so hard that it cries out and bleeds. And you have figured out how you can get this budget to do this and, and cut these coupons. And all your life you've had to work so hard to make your ends meet. And then you win the lottery. Or you get in the mail notification of an inheritance that you just got. Or maybe you just get a new job and you suddenly have all the money that you need to do everything that you ever wanted to do. How does that change your perception of life? Maybe you've been lonely all your life and you finally meet that life partner and that life partner is connected to this extensive family and suddenly you're thrust into that family and there's people all around you, gener- multi-generations and food and and holidays and festival. How does that change everything? Everything in you is geared to one reality, one way of dealing with your life and your environment and suddenly everything changes. Everything different. See, What we believe about our Father colors everything in our lives. Everything that we view, every attitude that we have is colored by the way that we view our Father. And our Father in heaven, the view of that is colored by our experience in life and the experience we had as children with our earthly fathers. Jesus is trying to break us free of all of that. He's trying to tell us that our Father is an inexhaustible abundance, an extravagant expenditure at every turn, that His love and provision literally falls from the sky. And it's always there for us. We're swimming in it right now. You are literally swimming in the Father, in the Father's presence, in the Father's provision. And you can't diminish it. There is nothing you can do to change that condition. It is what it is. And no matter how many get everything that the Father has, there's still everything left for you. You Y'all know that you're the Father's best friend? And so am I. And so is Frank. And so is everybody. (laughs) He can do that. He can have an infinite number of best friends. He can have an infinite number of parties in his pocket so that he can throw one for you. And it doesn't matter if you didn't get one today. (laughs) Because it's still there for you every time, all the time. So it's not about how long we have lived realizing God's presence and abundance. It's only that at some point we do realize this reality. Whenever or wherever we are when we do. You can't earn it. It's like admission is absolutely free and... Every seat is front row center. Do you really care who else joins you or when they join you? If the show's already in progress? You can't earn it. It's all here. It's all free. This is the Father that Jesus wants us to see. This is the picture that he's painting for us. This changes everything. If we know that our Father's love is inexhaustible, if we know that it's constantly pouring down on us, we can finally let go of the fear that we have that if we give something out, we won't have anything left for ourselves. That tyranny of scarcity finally is dissipated if we can understand who this Father is. And everything in Jesus is about trying to paint that picture for us, to get us to break free of the mentality of scarcity and realize that our Father is falling from the sky. Let's pray. Father, you are absolutely with us. If we're not aware, if we're not feeling it, if we're not seeing it, if it just doesn't seem so, Give us the desire. Give us the perseverance to keep letting go of anything that would keep us from that reality. Help us to take the steps we need to take. Help us to extend ourselves in ways that we need to extend ourselves even when it's uncomfortable, especially when it's uncomfortable. Help us to find the people in our lives that model who you are even the right books, whatever it takes. We want to be open and we want to be teachable and we want to be willing to take the risks. Whatever it takes, Lord, we want to know who you are and to see in you the means of our salvation that we can live without fear and live in complete Fearless vulnerability. Thank you for everything that you've given us, Lord. Thank you for this love that falls from the sky. Never let us forget we can only return it because you gave it to us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand.